Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. So we've got some heavy lifting to do here today, folks. And a lot of it is based on a couple of stories that were printed in the New York Times. Uh, there are, to be graceful, op-eds, although they purport to uh, be news. So we're going to set that up for you with these two stories, make a couple of comments, and then we're going to go deep into grace for the majority of the show. I'll start it out here by referring to an article that, I'm going to say article, that came on May 3rd in our New York Times from a writer by David Lanhart. And this has to do with the debt ceiling. And uh, David is setting this up for us by saying that the debt ceiling is what he calls a 90% story. So what does that mean? Uh, he talks about a 100% story, which is basically just reporting the facts. Uh, all the facts seem clear. Even the partisans agree. That's a 100% story. Things like the planet is warming, crime and inflation are high, suicide is up, that kind of stuff. That's a 100% story. And then he uh, he contrasts a 50% story. And a 50% story, basically all you need to know is that the facts are contested and there's often not enough evidence to support the various opinions in the debate. So that's a 50% story. The debt ceiling he calls a 90% story. And in this kind of a scenario, the facts themselves are disputed and no one can actually get conclusive evidence together for its side. They make claims that are not necessarily grounded rationally in truth, and neither side has a monopoly on the story itself. Now, as elaborate as this excuse might be for Mr. Lenart here, um, he's going to make some observations about the debt ceiling that go to just, well, I'll say it, ridiculous levels. Jim, let's talk about this stuff. Yeah, let's let in fact uh, let's start off by just adding a little bit more context to this 90% idea. In addition to everything you said, one side is way more right than the other. Like even though they oh, can't prove their point, don't you know? He's the reporter and he knows which side is 90% right and which one is not. Okay? But we can't prove it. We can't say it's 100% like a fact, right? But one side definitely is more right. And in this particular case, surprise surprise, He's siding with two things. Number one, that Biden's right and the Republicans are wrong, which doesn't surprise any of the partisans that are yeah, yeah, seems, seems normal. But the thing that's even more dramatically interesting is, and this is why we titled the show, The New York Times Loves the National Debt. The money must be spent, damn it. The money just absolutely must be spent. And we can't have any pause in the action. We got to keep spending the money. And that's the 90% side, because of course, as we described in the previous episode, that's how the regime media works. They are in bed with the major powers that run the, uh, that are the establishment of the government. So is this why Janet Yellen is saying to all of us, uh, Treasury, uh, what is she? Federal Reserve Chairman, Janet Yellen. Oh, is no, saying she's to Treasury all Secretary now. Treasury, Secretary, Treasury she, Secretary now. I lose track of all this stuff because I'm not watching <laughs> their media all the time. Treasury Secretary is saying to all of us, look, if we keep spending like this, we're going to run out of cash money on June 1st. Yes. And I, this date's really, uh, to me, is a bit interesting because they probably felt they could go to sometime maybe as far out as August, but definitely July. And this number was just revised and adjusted, just revised and adjusted. It was, uh, and that was because the April receipts, the April income tax receipts, which will be important to the story in a moment uh, in another way, were low. They came in way far below projections. And so they were like, oh crap, we've got to figure out how to do all this stuff and keep stuff going until June 1. We've lost that much revenue. The revenue going down is a sign that the economy has slowed down. This is a canary in the coal mine. And you say, well, why is that going to happen? Well, it happens because we've been, we, we uh, the Federal Reserve has been countering, yeah, they've been countering inflation by raising interest rates. They've been purposely attempting to slow the economy down. Now, the game they have to play is they have to slow the economy down without inducing a recession 
but this is a harbinger that recession's coming. And so we're all paying the price. This is what it, people need to be at pains to understand when we when we go into debt like this, the government's money is uh, solution is to print money. They print the money, which causes inflation. The inflation is a tax because it dries up the cost of the goods and services that you're buying. And 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 then and then when it gets a little too hot, they say, wait a minute, we got to put the brakes on the inflation, right? Because everybody's starting to squeal, and they pull back the other direction. And that in, but during that, during the inflation, all these businesses were getting a signal from the market that they should expand their facilities. They were making capital investments. They start venturing out and expanding their operations to meet what appears to be demand. But the demand is artificial because it's been driven by all this money that's been floated out into the economy. And when the contraction of those funds comes, the economy slows down in the middle of their capital projects or right after they've launched their capital projects. And now they go into recession and layoffs inevitably occur. And this is the price that we pay for this fiction that we can have stuff today and we won't have to pay for it tomorrow. And by the way, as Keynes said, we'll all be dead in the long run. So that the significance of this date is tied to the fact that there's, I think, there's a canary in the coal mine for a recession at the moment. I'm not saying for sure it's going to happen. I cannot predict the future. But it seems pretty clear to me that 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 there is a reason to be concerned. So here we are having uh, the results of the situation we allowed to happen, and at the same time, <laughs> starting to point fingers. So um, our friend the New York Times likes to say the Democrats have never been in this situation before, but the Republicans have been in it often, and the Republicans are the bad guys. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, specifically, they think that they've been the bad guys by by virtue of the fact that they are using the uh, debt ceiling law as a method to renegotiate the budget and engaging in brinksmanship. And they're saying the Democrats have not done that. What the Democrats have done instead is they have used the debt limit, uh, the debt ceiling uh, concept to renegotiate social programs or other things. And when Biden was in the Senate, he did it. He voted against uh, increasing the debt ceiling for negotiating purposes several times. And when they, when Obama and Biden were in the Senate together, one time they did do it uh, uh, together in 2006 as U.S. senators. They voted against increasing the debt ceiling because they want to negotiate things. But but the Republicans are so much worse, you understand, because they don't want to spend the money like they want to like take some things out of the budget. And that's wrong. Like when Democrats do it, they're not playing brinksmanship. They're just raising some interesting questions. Republicans, on the other hand, are willing to go past the line yeah. by a day, a two a week, 10 days, maybe even of not paying the bills. And we're risking cataclysm. Cataclysm is going to occur. It's going to be the apocalypse. It's going to be the end of the world. Can I tell you something interesting? Republicans' demands are way too tepid to qualify for the apocalypse. We are running, we have a 33 trillion, you can't even conceive of the number, a $33 trillion national debt and growing by more than a trillion a year, every single year, okay? And growing faster and faster. We are spending at deficit levels every single year. We've been doing it the entire century. And we were doing it for most of this, the, the, for the half century before that, most of it. There were a couple of moments of balanced budget, but for the most part, no. So we've accumulated this very large debt that's, that we're never going to pay off. We're never going to come close to reducing. It's going to consume a large portion of our federal budget. We're just growing, 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 and we can't have this conversation. This conversation just can't be had. And, and these uh, are the Republicans who are ask, asking for reason that the New Times likes to call far right. Yeah. Right? And so let me tell you how small their proposal is. Their proposal would take us back to, this is, this is the distant past, you're going to have a hard time remembering this, but it would take us back to a budget slightly bigger than the one we had in 2019. Now, do you remember the squalor do you, if, that we lived in in 2019? Do you remember the fact that we couldn't find any government anywhere? The government was so small and absent and unable to help with anything. It was just, it was so tiny. It was a babe. It was just, there was no government at all almost, right? I should no. probably laugh out loud here just so that our left leaning uh, audience might understand that Jim is actually making a joke right now. Yeah, it's absurd. It's completely absurd. So they're asking for just a handful of things. Like one thing, let me give you an example. What are the really big items, right? You ready for this one? There was a whole bunch of money passed out to businesses during the pandemic. 
to keep them open and to keep them going. And not all of it's been spent. And so they want to do something that's called a clawback, which is rather than leave that money set out available to still be spent for the purposes it was originally designated, they would like to stop and bring that money back into the, 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 uh, the fund so that they can use it for other purposes. In this case, not to use it so that they could be, they wouldn't borrow quite as much. And we're radical only talking idea. about $60 billion. Radical. Right? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's end, incredibly it'll, radical. It'll end things as we know them. Do you do remember that the IRS, the, the, the Biden administration wanted to increase the amount of audits they are doing on all of us? Now, they said it was going to be for the rich, but come on, $80 billion on new audits wasn't going to be directed at the rich. It's going to be directed at you. And uh, the, the Republicans are saying, we don't need to spend that additional $80 billion on the IRS. I mean, these are the modest, these proposals are so modest. They're so small that to pretend that this is going to be cataclysm. That, you know, he shouldn't even negotiate with, with the Republicans. Joe Biden shouldn't. It's just absurd. It's just absolutely absurd when we have a $33 trillion debt coming down the pike. And before we're done today, I'm going to tell you how it's going to hit, who it's going to hit, and I'm going to make you sick when I do. So our, <laughs> our other friends at the New York Times have four scenarios for how this thing is supposed to end. Oh, let's hear these four scenarios, please. And... You know, it's like there's only four of them, right? So I read there's the only four. Let's be right. go ahead. Only four. So, yes. uh, <laughs> okay, I, I, I'll, I'll try to keep a straight face here. One of them is just to increase the debt ceiling. Now, okay. why we have a debt limit at all is a whole different show. But we do, and there's like one other country in the whole world that has a debt ceiling, and they do a much better job with it than the United States. Anyway, so that's number one, increase it. Number one, number two, negotiate an increase to it. That is trade off some cuts with some increases, right? To to like make it look like we've done something good. Number three. I don't know why. I don't know why this is number two. Yeah, I don't and know. I don't you, it shouldn't be number two because every single time we've been at this precipice before, this is exactly what's happened. That's what now, happens, right? How, now, how many times has it not happened? Zero. How many yeah. times has it happened? A hundred percent of the time. Yep. Okay. So we they always negotiate an increase. And I'm always. going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to guarantee you, I'm going to guarantee you that that's what's going to happen in this situation too. The only question is whether it will happen before the June 1 deadline, probably not, or after the June 1 deadline. And I, it won't, it won't be, it won't be multiple weeks. This will happen fairly quick. I'm sorry. I got in the way no, of you. you. There were four. We just went through two. Well, we went through the, the the point that we stopped on, number two, is the point that matters. The others are sort of superfluous because as crazy as it sounds, the administration is floating a proposal that they could just by executive fiat remove the debt limit. Just oh. remove it. Yes. Like stroke of the pen. Did, did you read what they? one of the ways they could do this? They based it on some weird clause in the 14th Amendment of all things? Yes, yes. It's even this crazier has to do than the trillion dollar coin. The trillion dollar coin. I just, I love right. the platinum trillion dollar minting right. the coin. I, I just like, where do people come up with this stuff? So th they could do that or they could rely on the 14th amendment. And real quickly, the 14th amendment was dealing with the fact that there were, they wanted to make sure that once the South uh, came back in, that they wouldn't start using federal dollars to pay off Confederate war debt. And they wouldn't stop or block or prevent paying off union war debt. So that was the whole purpose of it. But there, you know, <laughs> this you give a little you give them an inch of power they're going to take a mile they're sitting here talking with a straight face about going back and using that clause as if you know republicans questioning the debt are confederates fighting against the nation i, I so, okay go on smart number four are, smart people are using your money right now to study this people so yes. um, you know <laughs> think about that and then of course the last one is government default we throw up our hands uh, we stop paying our bills and you know just because the government stops paying its bills for a day or two does not mean that the government has defaulted. People who are invested in the United States of America are watching this carefully, are not going to go bankrupt because the government stops paying its bills for two or three days. They would if the government were unable to pay its bills at all. And we've seen what that looks like in certain parts of the world that remain unnamed right now. But that's that's <laughs> option number four. And, you know, Jim, there's a better option, right? Not one, there's not something... two, maybe two, not three, yeah. not four. There's something missing from the list. So let's go back to the beginning of the podcast for a second, just to set this up. We had this 150-90 rule. And the 90 rule was that one side is 90% right. 
Now, there's four proposals here, and one's missing. I'm going to do some math with you. That would mean 20% of the possible scenarios are missing. There's, there's, there's one more uh, scenario that's missing from the list. So they're only at least 80% right at this juncture. <laughs> Not 90, okay? We've already subtracted 10%. Yeah. But the other thing that they're saying to you is that cataclysm is one of them. They give you an item that is cataclysm, and I'm going to demonstrate that that's not true right now. I'm going to put that completely to bed with option number five. You ready? Go. A balanced budget means that you have money coming in, and you spend no more than the amount of money that you have coming in. So every day, every week, every month... As we just covered at the beginning of the show, there are receipts that are coming into the government. They have income coming. And what the Treasury Secretary would have to do and will do, even in the days where there's not an agreement and the debt ceiling cannot be missed, is they will find ways to pay things. She will make sure, for example, her salary is paid. They will find ways to pay the necessary bills of the government. But they won't be able to exceed the amount of income that's coming in. And that is definitionally what we call a balanced budget. It's a balanced budget. It's a balanced budget. Option and that five. should have been that should have been option five in the list. They left that out. And they, instead, they put a cataclysm that's never going to happen in the list. And so are we talking 80% act journalism? Are we talking 70% journalism? Good grief. I think we found out who the 10% wrong uh, right are. So how do we get there? I mean, this is my big question right now. Everybody knows, you know. Canary in the coal mine is dead. What do we do? Well, I, first off, I would like to see people not be so anxious and excited about this and upset. And I would like to secondly, see the Republicans actually ask for a lot more than they're asking because we're whistling past the graveyard too, if we want to borrow another phrase. Uh, this is going to cause real problems we're going to, as we're going to discuss uh, here in just a moment. Uh, so I, I would like to see them you know, do something more. I would like to see people not so, as we discussed in the previous episode, driven by uh, media agenda setting, which in this particular case is going to be fear-mongering. This New York Times coverage is one-sided and fear-mongering. They're not 90% one camp. They're 100% one camp, and it's spend the money. Spend the money. That's all they want to see happen. I, I, I believe in the debt ceiling concept. I'm going to say this right up front. I believe in it because there's a difference between the way that we budget money and spend it in the federal expenditure process and this debt ceiling moment, and that is perspective. So do, people should understand what the true purpose of a politician is, what it is that they really, really, really do. These are people who are participating in an advanced auction of stolen goods. They're going to make sure that they pass out to their favored interests and friends money that is collected from the national treasury. And they're going to do that on the basis that they won an election by one vote or more. And that gives them 100% power and control to make these decisions. And they're going to spend money in ways that are going to violate your values, your conscience, your, your priorities, your happiness. They're going to violate the principle of human respect to do this, which says that anytime you take from someone uh, something that belongs to them or you harm them in some way to get to a social goal, their happiness their, and, and social harmony and prosperity overall are going to go down. It's just, it's, it's like gravity that that's going to happen. Yeah. It's, and it's, they're going to engage in this activity. This is what politicians do. They, they play a role where they help move money from one place to another, from, from you to a set of special interests. That is that is 95% of the politicians, that is their number one job is to do that because that is how they get elected. That's how they get the resources to get elected. That's how they get the proper media coverage and the lack of criticism for being too far outside the mainstream. And the New York Times is the regime, is part of the regime. They want the money spent on all these different things. So during the budget process, during the entire budget process, Congressman Bill, what you're going to do is you're going to do everything you can to deliver the bacon, to deliver the goods. You're going to make sure that you do that job. 100% of the time, your mind is focused on spending. That's what the budget's about is spending. How do we spend? And how do I get my priorities into the, the final budget? How do I make sure that my friends and interests and the things I'm working on who are supporting me are taken care of? I need to get those in the budget. But at the debt ceiling moment, the Republicans have created a new opportunity for us to change perspective and say, you know what, we're looking at the whole picture right now, and we think we've decided that we spent too much. So maybe some things need to be taken out 
This is literally the opposite perspective of the thing that they're doing in the entire budget process. And to me, changing perspective, looking at things from new angles and new ways is, an, is, is a great thing. So the debt ceiling and the way it's being used right now, the only problem with the way they're using it right now is they're not asking for enough. We are spending way too much. And that is, by David Leonhardt's uh, definition, 100% fact. The trouble is that all that spending is kicking a mortgage down the road. It's not yes. cash money that they're spending. They're spending IOUs. Oh, okay. So, you know, a lot of times when we're doing these shows, you'll say to me, Jim, what's the grace point here? But we're going to introduce a new concept today. How about a grace plea? I want to make a plea based on grace. I want to ask you to think of somebody else for just a moment, particularly if you have a government job, a government pension, you're on Social Security, you're on Medicare, or you're going to be soon. I'm going to ask you for a moment to think about somebody else other than yourself. I'm going to make a grace plea. So, uh, Bill, um, is a Ponzi scheme immoral in your opinion? Yeah, people are defrauded and hurt. That doesn't work. Okay. Ernie Madoff, right? Yeah. Okay. How does a Ponzi scheme work? Just your own your own words. What, what's a quick summary oh, well, of a Ponzi scheme? You, you take from everybody that you can to finance stuff that's going to happen that you claim will happen and doesn't, basically. And you pay the people to come on board with what other people have paid you. Yeah. So the people who get in first tend to profit the most. The people who get in the least tend to be the most defrauded. And it, it, it works out its way down a pyramid. So, like in a continuum fashion, it's a right? Pyramid of fraud, right? Okay, pyramid of fraud. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. Love that definition. I'm going to say something's going to hurt really, really bad. It's going to sting like unbelievably. Social security is a Ponzi scheme. There is no uh, fund or an account in your name, ladies and gentlemen. There, it just doesn't exist. What happens is, and has been happening for a very long time, and Al Gore made an issue of this in the 2000 campaign, uh, but he's the only major politician that's done so, is that the money was taken and moved, that came from Social Security taxes, what we call payroll taxes as opposed to income taxes, and about, uh, almost 12.5% right now moves from uh, earnings in payroll taxes into the social security trust fund as it's called, but there's no trust and no fund. What they do is a, uh, there is a fund, but it's not a trust. <laughs> they, what they do is they put the, uh, they, they collect that money there, but the Congress started rating that money to pay for education, welfare, uh, defense, paying off debt, all the other regulation, all the other things that they do. They use that money to pay for that stuff. And they stole it from social security. Well, they didn't steal it. That's overstatement. What they did is they put an IOU there, is treasury bills. They handed them treasuries and said, here is a piece of paper saying, at a future date when you need it, the federal government will, repay, will pay you back. So politicians in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s were able to live fat and large, spend our money like crazy. Many of them are dead now because in the long run, we're all dead, right, Kings? And now the bills are due because Social Security does not collect enough to pay its bills. There's more people retiring now, the baby boom generations in the retirement phase, and the people that have come behind them, birth rates went down and other things happened, and now they are running at a deficit. So the Social Security Administration starts sending these IOUs back and requesting that they be paid. And in 2033, listen to me closely. This is the most important thing I'm going to say in the entire podcast. I'm going to lay some, some big spiritual concepts down. We're going to take a real, some real grace steps here today. But if you hear nothing else that I say in this, this podcast, please listen to this, okay? The trust fund runs out of IOUs in roughly 2033 at this juncture. That's 10 years from where we're sitting right now. That's just 10 years away. And Social Security benefits by law will have to be cut by one-fifth at that juncture. And something similar is going to happen in Medicare only sooner. And these are the two largest long-term debt obligations, the two of the three largest programs that we run in the federal government. These are two of the three largest debt drivers in the government. And every day that we wait to deal with this thing, we make the situation worse so that we could arrive at a point where they have to be cut by one-fifth by law 
in order to, to, to deal with this. Now, will Congress do something to abate this? Well, maybe, but the millennials who, and, and, and the one, and the, and, and generation Z coming up behind them are saying, are they going to pay much higher taxes to pay for our, uh, I'm 55 right now. I won't quite be on social security yet. Be very, very close. Are they going to pay for my diapers, my nursing home, my, you know, or, or even just my ability to walk around in white shoes all day and play golf? Are they going to pay for that stuff? Like, are they going to say, no, we're not quite ready to put foot the bill for that stuff. We want to, we, we have our own goals and things that we're, we're under debt ourselves with our student loan debt. We had to pay way more to buy a house because, you know, government helped make housing better and consequently we can't afford it. I mean, they're going to be in these, these positions where, you know, I think it's a, it's an iffy proposition that there's going to be a complete bailout of social security. And it might be that we've inflated ourselves into who knows what stratosphere by that juncture. It's just, you start to see this start to come together. And this is the punchline. This is the heart part that hurts the most. There are people who are going to be 100% dependent on social security and a 20% cut to them. That is real cataclysm. I want you to even personally imagine, even if you're doing decently well off, how much a 20% cut would hurt. For most Americans, losing 20% of their income would be fatal. They lose the house. But we're going to take people who are living, and this is probably what they're relying on, and we're going to cut them by 20% because we can't deal with the problem. Every successive year that this has been talked about, the problem has been getting worse and worse. And the year before, it would have been easier to solve. And the year before that, it would have been still easier to solve. We're way past the point where we can't solve this without causing any pain. Way past that point. But every day we wait, the pain is going to get more difficult and the ability to solve it is going to get more difficult. Now, I'm going to just make go out on a limb and say 2033, they probably will figure out a way to kick that can down the pipe a few, uh, down the pike a couple more years. They probably will figure out how to paper some of this over. And it won't seem like it's bad. But I promise if we sit at that moment, that hour, when they do it in 2033 and we start looking backwards in time to today, we will see that there's been a lot of little cuts that happened along the way. I just want you to think for a moment about the amount of inflation we just experienced as a result of all the money they pumped into the economy and the and the and the the effect that that's had on all of us. Okay? The people that got hurt the worst were the people that had to go to buy groceries and grocery was a significant portion of their income. The people that had to go pay their rent where rent was a significant, I mean really significant portion of their income and they were already struggling to make ends meet when that happened. These policies hurt the poor the most. And we we sit here whistling Dixie or debating things about, I don't know, transgender issues or I don't pick something. I would pick something on the right. See, phony gun control rules. Like there's all this stuff we spend our time, waste our energy talking about. And we're not focused on this thing that's going to affect everyone in my earshot. By the way, when the when the United States gets a, uh, gets a, a, a little bit of a cough, the world gets the flu. So this is, there's just no way, anybody that hears this show, there's no way that the story I'm affecting you won't affect you unless you are dead when the time comes. And, and it will affect people you care about because some of them will still be alive. That's the reality of the situation. So is the New York Times just deflecting attention from the real problem? The New York Times wants the money now. So uh, Keynesianism, which is the, the, they've given it different names as time's gone. They keep updating the, the, the theory. Right. There's new monetary theory and there's this and that. I, I don't know. I don't keep up with it anymore, but it's all Keynesianism. Keynesian economics says that you have a private sector that spends X amount and then you have a public sector, which is code for government. Government spends so much and that is your total economy. And that when the private sector cannot pay as much, the government needs to step in, maybe even deficit spend to make up the difference so that we don't get hurt during those times of difficulty, like the one we just went through in COVID. Yeah, with COVID, right? Right. But the problem is that when the when the emergency ends, nobody goes back and says, now we got to mop up, pay the bills. So the largest bailout in the history of the country, the largest bailout in the history of the country was in 2007. Okay. But wait, we went through the pandemic and guess what? That became far and away. I mean, it like crushed the previous record. We spent 700 billion on that bailout. This one was 2.1 trillion on the COVID bailout. And we're not done because now we're seeing bank failures starting to occur. 
and the size of the bank failures in dollars, in real dollars, compared to what they were in, in 2007 and 8 and 9 and 10. Every Take any one of those years, they don't come anywhere near in terms of dollars, not number of banks, not amount of disruption in the system yet. We don't know what's going to happen on that front. That's still to, that's still to be played out. But it's already the case that the amount of dollars that have had to be put into this dwarfs any one of those years. So <laughs> they just never, it's the devil has no breaks. And the New York Times is the devil in this case. And it's not just them. It's it, the entire media coverage has been about some cataclysm that just isn't going to happen. And we know it's not going to happen because we've been through this how many times and how many times have we come out with a negotiated deal at the very end of it? And that negotiated deal was within days of the deadline. How many times? It's 100% of the time. It seems to me like we're talking about two different issues here, which is the debt ceiling and a balanced budget and obligations that we've incurred that we have no way to pay. Is that, have I got that right? Yes, yes, but this is Grace Arkey and we like to veer off into the spiritual. I'm openly um, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I go in and I look at the lessons the Bible has to say on this subject. And I hope that didn't just turn everybody off because everybody's got a Christian friend. And I want to tell you that Christians have been just as much part of the problem as every other group in this country. They still want to spend money on lots of things. And I, 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 you bring any conservative on here and I can show you that that's true. We have a problem that we are serving mammon. Mammon is a, is, is a personified almost in as if it's a God or a demon uh, in the New Testament in particular, but it's, it, it's implied in some Old Testament passages, the same way that wisdom is personified in the Old Testament. Uh, the word, uh, the, the, I like the Septuagint, the Greek version that Jesus and, and the disciples quoted from frequently, their word for wisdom was Sophia. So it was the, the spirit of wisdom was Sophia, right? I, just, I love that. I find that very charming, but mammon is held up as potentially a deity. Now it's not agreed upon that. Maybe that was hundred percent what they were thinking back then. And it might not have been until actually, uh, uh, Milton came along, John Milton came along and, and, and said, you know, we're going to personify it. There there's, but there's, yeah, there's I writers. I mean, you could, yeah, you, there's other writers There's Augustine, there's Dante and his divine comedy, uh, Spencer and the fairy queen, all of them kind of uh, talked about this spirit, this attitude that tends to drive people called mammon and mammon does appear uh, in the scripture. In fact, the term is used explicitly in Matthew six twenty four. Uh, as a Greek term for money, wealth, or riches, the the, the extreme pursuit of it. Uh, in the the idea in uh, in in Christian Christendom, and then maybe even biblically speaking, is kind of related to the city of Babylon. This the, the, the that is appears in Revelation eighteen, which is just full of avarice and greed. And uh, there's some scholarship that seems to indicate that it may have actually been a Syrian or Chaldean god. Uh, similar to the Greek god of wealth, Plutus. Um, uh, so uh, I think, you know, we'll get into some specific references here before we close, but I, I think that if we start to understand uh, demonic uh, influence or principalities and powers as being motivated by certain spirits or energies, and in this case, it's the love and worship of money at, in all things at all times, um, right down to the point that the coins that they mint say in God we trust. And I'm going to suggest to you the God that they trust is mammon. They trust in the money. They're always looking for the money. The politicians are moving the money. They're elected by moneyed interests. And the moneyed interests are interested. And, and, and everybody shows up to the trough. Everybody shows up to the trough voting for the interests that will give them the most money. Yeah, as you I said, mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing motivated. that trumps. That's the thing. Yeah. And then, you know, so when somebody like uh, Carville says it's the economy, stupid, what he's saying is it's the money, stupid. Right. It, and, and, and listen, this is where we have to live. We have to pay our bills. Right. So it, it makes sense that people would put a high priority on whether or not they could acquire uh, their funds. But when they're doing it by taking from others. And almost the entire government's spending apparatus is based is, is a giant wealth dis redistribution scheme. You have certain pro priorities that you would follow that would make you happier, that you would uh, increase your prosperity. 
we can't let you do that because we have other priorities over here. My charity, my idea, my social cause is more important than yours. We need regulation to protect, you know, me from you. You know, I, you're my enemy. And and frankly, you know, if, if, if I'm taking money from you and it makes you cry, since given that you're my political enemy, more the better. Like <laughs> we took your money and we made you cry. Oh, thank God. This is this is wonderful. Yeah, thank God. Which God? God, mammon. The mammon, right? Because we want to make sure that our interests are covered here. And and so, you know, we don't, you, if you just so much as whisper, Bill, that Social Security is going to get cut or Medicare is going to get cut. And it could be like a backwards disinformation story, right? Like, oh, so-and-so put up a bill today to do whatever. That's only going to have him as a sponsor or her as a sponsor. And it's never going to go anywhere. That'll be enough to rally a significant portion of American people who, in the older set, who will go, you're not going to touch my Social Security. I will say to you that when I, I went and spoke at some Tea Party rallies back in the day, and the thing that turned me off was I started figuring out that there were two other issues that were animating them, and one of them was they didn't want Medicare touched. You better not touch our Medicare. And so, you know, we have to do something to make sure that people who need it are taken care of. We can't just yank the rug and people who spent a whole lifetime kind of counting on that and maybe didn't plan accordingly well enough, or they had serious health issues that kept them held back, or they had uh, really other difficult circumstances. And, and this is a significant portion of what they're going to do to survive. We don't want to crush these people. That's sick. That's wrong. But by the same token, does that mean we all have to ride to hell together? We all have to take the worst possible trip and fail to address this thing? Because today we serve mammon. We eat, we drink, we be merry for tomorrow, as Lord Keynes would put it, we die. And when we die, why should we care? That's the spirit of mammon of which I speak. There's a whole um, conversation about responsibility in there that we could get into. And, and yes. none of us are big Let's. enough to pull you know, like the, the levers of government by ourselves. So what's our personal level responsibility on this? Which, by okay. the way, um, I, I resonate with what you're saying just way too deeply because what's that verse from Proverbs about how um, when you're in debt, you're a slave? Yes. Uh, specifically, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes slave to the lender. And I thought we had abolished slavery in the United States, but uh, <laughs> here we are serving. So if somebody has overwhelming student loan debt for a degree that they can't monetize into something, that enables them to not only pay that debt, but to make more than they would have if they hadn't gotten the degree in the first place. If they can't do both things. Yeah. If that investment isn't going to fly, then did the politicians really help us make education more accessible? You know, it shows up, the politicians keep showing up saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. And I'm going to lift the burden off your shoulders. You know, right now you've got a daycare issue. I'm, I'm going to take care of that for you. Or, you know, you need to make sure that your kids are going to be able to go to college. I'm going to fix that for you. Or you can't afford your health insurance premium. You can't believe how high your premium and your deductibles have gone up. I'm going to fix that. You're going you're gonna to be able to keep your health care plan, right? And I'm going to fix it. It's Nothing's going to happen to you, but we're going to make sure everyone has insurance. Watch. Watch. Watch what wonderful. In fact, it'll be so wonderful that when we do it, your premium will actually go down. Health, health and health costs, because we create this pool, the health costs will actually decline. We're still waiting for that. Still waiting for that. Uh, we, can go, we can go fight a war against a mythical weapon of mass destruction, and uh, we'll not only avoid the mushroom cloud over the city, but they will thank us as liberators, and, and we will harvest some of that oil, and we'll come out, we'll come out at a profit doing this. It's going to be so easy. This is the kind of stuff they do all the time. They say, you know, they told the previous generation, we spent a lot of time talking about this in a previous episode. They told the, uh, my generation how easy it would be to buy a house. And you know what? They did make it easy for me. They did. Just like they made it, the, my grandfather got more, far more out of social security than, than I ever will, right? He really made out on that deal. I made out on the housing deal. They made housing. They were going to, we were starting an ownership society. They said, we're going to build an ownership society. So, you know, first house, you know, I'm able to assume a loan real simple about it. I, mean, I walk in, it's like easy, right? But now this current generation is looking at staggering housing costs. I get on Zillow. I, I, I live in a place where housing costs are relatively low. I am staggered by how much people pay for houses. I'm staggered how much you pay for a house bill. I couldn't afford to live in, in, in your city. I could not afford it. Yeah. I live in a nice house. I'm blessed, but I couldn't afford half my house in your city. I, I just, it, it is, it is, and this is the direction that thing, and by that's where the jobs are, right? This is the direction that things keep going. 
when politicians show up to help. Well, that, that and, showing up to help, that just that puts us further and further into slavery. Well, who did they help? They helped the military industrial complex in Iraq, That's all right. the defense contractors who, and Afghanistan. By the way, that was a real reason they were upset about the Afghanistan withdrawal. It was a cash cow. It's a cash yep. cow. Yep. Uh, who did they help in the housing crisis? Well, a bunch of mortgage lenders and home builders and everything else. The realtors all were doing great off okay, of that deal. Got free right at the end of it. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the major investment houses and bank banks got off scot free, and we bailed them out. We allowed them their profits, and we and we and we picked up the tab for their losses. Gracious people that we are, right? And lost. Our we were house told we had to, or we right? were going to lose our savings account. Yeah, which happened. Anyway. I, I just again and again and again, it's a bad deal. Mammon ends up serving some small set of interests, but they aren't yours. And so, <laughs> I'm not a guy that says that we should close Social Security tomorrow. I'm not that guy. As libertarian as I am, I recognize what cataclysm that would cause in real people's lives. But <laughs> every passing day, this problem gets harder and harder and harder to solve. So we have to face it. So let's do and that. I think how the problem we, is worship it? of mammon leads to absorption of debt. It, it leads to believing that debt is actually a virtue or a good thing. It leads to politicians selling us the notion that debt is going to make us happier. Yeah. I, 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 I'm with you on this, but, but the fix, but the fix, Jim, I mean, well, first, first, everyone has to come to recognize that debt is a curse. Debt is a curse. If you can't possibly, there is a such thing as capital debt. That's very legitimate. Uh, where you were investing in something that will that will balance out in the end. You will come out ahead as a result of having done it. But most debt that we as Americans take on, especially regular Americans, is consumer debt. And that's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. So the first thing I would tell you is I'm going to give you an acronym. You ready? It's good. You can keep you can memorize this and keep this with you and share it with your kids and your grandkids. Get out of debt. G-O-O-D. Okay. From a biblical perspective, Romans 13, 8 says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Your ability to love will go up when you are not burdened by debt. Your ability to do good will go up when you are not burdened by debt. Your ability to provide for your family and maybe even to assist others outside your family will go up when you are out of debt. The best investment you can make 99 times out of 100 is to get out of debt. So if you're saying, well, I've got some extra money. Should I put it in the stock market? Get out of debt. You say, well, I've got some extra money. Should I upgrade my housing? Get out of debt. You say, well, I think I should go buy a car. Get out of debt. In fact, don't take a new loan to buy that new car. Save up for that car. And I'm sitting here as someone saying this, who's, who's following his own cooking. I've done exactly what I said. My very first goal in buying my house was to pay it off. That was my very first goal in buying my house was to pay it off. Get out of debt. Number two, uh, our debt was relieved by the cross. And just real quickly, I want to I want to quote uh, uh, this, the Bible says that uh, it, it, our debt was taken away at the cross. But it goes in Colossians, it goes one step further and suggests that it disarms the principalities and powers. So help me connect the dots on this, because I see the debt of sin as being something different than money debt. Oh, no, I do, too. But it's just like one verse later, it goes from your debt of sin is relieved. And the very next point is that that uh, is that we can that the cross disarms principalities and powers getting out of debt, even spiritual debt, being in that place of believing that we're not that that we're not that, that we're not valued and wanted by God that we're separated from him, getting out of that position, getting out of, because we tend to be our own worst uh, debt holder, right? We are our right. accuser. Okay. Yeah. I have to hide who I am. I have to pretend I'm something other than I am. I have to appeal to other people. I have to imitate other people. The cross gave us a better model to imitate and it relieves, it relieves social pressures. It relieves uh, internal anxieties and these things are a lot of what drive our compulsions and our spendings. But so, your compulsions and spendings are the things that the politicians are preying on. And so are marketers. True. So it's easy to stop spending. Or I'm saying, let's be that way. It's easier to stop spending than it is to pay down debt. But your proposal is that instead of spending more, we use that whatever we would spend to pay down debt. Trouble is many people are spending 
on consumer debt rather than on cash. I have a relationship in my life who has been very responsible with their money, but has roommates who are not. And in, he can tell me exactly what those people do with their money. I'm not, I'm not being specific for a reason. He could tell me specifically why these other people, his roommates are burdened by debt and overwhelmed and he's not. And it doesn't have anything to do with their income levels because they're all the same. They're all virtually the same. So <laughs> we, we start off making really bad choices thinking that if we got a little extra money, we have something to spend. Uh, you don't have extra to spend until you have extra to save. You don't have extra to save until you've paid off your debt. It, it, it really, it's just that simple. There's no investment you're going to make in yourself that's better than paying off your debt. Get free of that. And then life opens itself up to you. Uh, number three, debt is bondage. And I, th I'm at pains to say in this episode, oh, absolutely. That the state encourages it. The state encourages. encourages it. They create money out of debt. That is the mechanism by which, so someone goes in and borrows money and that is, and I'm over, grossly oversimplifying. The economists will, will grit their teeth as I say this, but in general, the creation of money for mortgages, loans, all this stuff, that's how money is generated in this economy. It doesn't yet exist. It comes into existence by the those activities. That's how our banking system works. The Federal Reserve is a debt-based system, but it, it, it doesn't just stop there. Student loans were sold as a way to, 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 to significant wealth, and that hasn't worked out, and it's now, it's now gone in reverse. It was home mortgages. I mean, the areas that the government gets involved with the deepest are the ones that have the least progress. The areas that the government gets involved with and in saying that they're going to make it easier for you end up becoming the most expensive things. And and, and education yep. and housing and healthcare are three biggies where yes. progress has, has not been what it could have been, but costs have gone way, way up in their attempt to help us. And so, delivery of, of services has gone way down too, like in the healthcare so your politicians, industry. Yeah. So your politicians are putting you in bondage. That's what they're doing. They're enslaving you. And they're enslaving us to an economic system that is going to have cataclysmic uh, consequences for us, potentially. Definitely going to hurt us. But things could have been so much better than, than, than if they hadn't helped. Honest to God, it could have been so much better. We could have had things. I, you know, I'm not saying we would have, but we could have had flying cars by now. I don't know. Right? The Jetsons' future was not available to us because they kept regulating and taxing and spending all of the excess they could get their hands on. And they got that money, not by telling you that they were going to regulate the heck out of you, tax you until it hurt, uh, and, 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 and spend into oblivion. They got that money by promising to feel your pain and help. Yes. How about uh, this forgiveness of debt idea? Oh, and here's We've another about this with the student yes. loan debt forgiveness, right? Yeah. So there, in fact, there was a concept called Jubilee, right? So uh, Deuteronomy 15, one and two, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debt. And at seven times seven, the 49th year, you actually turn back titles and land. And so this was supposed to be part of the system. It was never implemented, but the lesson in it is, is that, that forgiving of debt is considered a virtue. So if you're looking to help people, don't, don't lend, give. And where you're capable of forgiving and you see someone struggling, forgive them. Let's, let's get out of the debt. Now, I don't, I don't want people who will get into debt may get right back into debt somewhere else. And that may not be healthy. You might have to use some wisdom and discretion how you do this. But we should be looking to try to find ways to get people out of debt. There's no politician out there talking about how we can reduce debt in, even in, in, in households and in people. They're not out there doing that. They are offering new programs that are going to increase either the government's debt and long-term your debt or short-term increase your debt, such as student loans. And, and then everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. Oh my forgive gosh, us I was our, just that. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we forget, you know, right? Forgive us our debts. This is a plea to God to be out of the same bondage. So the way that you could exercise grace is to find some debt you can forgive. That's a good grace thing to do. And then the other thing I would say is that relieving debt is compared directly to forgiveness, which is a, pr a profoundly gracious act of healing and restoration. Yes, yes. In Matthew uh, 18, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a servant who owed his master a large sum of money, and the servant is forgiven. 
the master forgives the servant and he goes away. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. He gets outside and finds somebody who owes him a pittance of fund. Nowhere near the amount of money that would have even helped him pay that debt. And he shakes him down and he yells at him and he slaps him around. And then he says, well, if you're not going to give me the money today, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. And then this news gets back to the master's ears who had forgiven the large debt. And he gets angry and throws that person in debtor's prison himself. His forgiveness dries up. I think that uh, we, if we are in a position where we're blessed, where our life has been decently good, and we have the opportunity to help. I'm, I'm a big fan of micro loans and uh, micro shares, you know, or grants or gifts to help people start enterprises that can make the lives of people better, not just here, but especially in the third world. Like if we have the opportunity to help people in, 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 in difficult and challenging circumstances, overcome their circumstances, particularly if they're going to help others, this is, this is such a powerful idea. But we can, we can do something a lot harder. And this is something we talk about a lot here, which is extend grace, which implies that the people who get the benefit of the blessing we provide, that they don't really deserve it. They didn't earn it. They didn't earn that. Oh, that's a, that's a dead end right there. Yep. Well, let me, let me just add one more thing before we go. And that is, I want you, everyone listening to figure out how they can escape their dependence on the system or minimize or reduce it. Figure out how you can structure your life so you don't need state dollars. You don't need state favors. You don't need state grants. You don't need state assistance. Now, it might be that it might be very, very difficult. The system might be constructed in such a way that you have to get on it. Like Medicare, you're required to get on it. Uh, there may be, there's various educational programs where that's the path to being able to participate in the, in, in the system. You, you just have to play by those rules. But to the degree that you can free yourself, to the degree that you can get out of those, those structures, you will then be empowered to do something very pro-social, which is to help others. But you first have to learn how to take care of yourself. That's step one. And that always involves good. Get out of debt. And if each of us modeled this and lived by this, you know, Bill, the money that the government spends every day, every week, it isn't coming ultimately from the Russians. It's not coming from the Martians, as Harry Brown would have said. It's coming from you and it's coming from me and it's coming from everyone who's watching right now. So we have the wherewithal. We have the resources to care for our neighbor. And we can do that. We can be far more effective at doing that if we will repudiate debt and then follow it up by repudiating schemes where politicians burden future generations 